Greetings, friends and colleagues. Welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, the Professional Educator's Thought Partner, a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. I am Scott Lee. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Van Bockern, a Professor Emeritus of Education at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Before becoming a professor, Steve was also a teacher and a principal. Along with colleagues Larry Brentrow, who joined us in the 2022 season, and Martin Brokenleg, Steve is co-author of the book Reclaiming Youth at Risk, Futures of Promise. He is also a co-founder of the nonprofit organization Reclaiming Youth International, which hosts professional development activities for educators and youth care professionals. His research interests include resiliency, alternative education, restorative practice, and well-being in school settings. He is the author of the book, Schools That Matter, Teaching the Mind and Reaching the Heart. Over the next two episodes, we'll share conversations about all of these topics. Welcome, Steve, to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, join the program. Thank you for being here. Let's start by mentioning your work with the book, Reclaiming Youth at Risk, Futures of Promise, which you co-authored with uh, Martin Brokenleg and Larry Brentrow. As you know, last season, uh, Larry and I talked a a lot about the book and a lot about the changes to the new edition for uh, 2019. Could you just remind us a little bit about the uh, book itself and the major concepts? Sure, I'd be happy to. It was way back in 1989 when Larry and Martin and I got together, three professors at a small university in South Dakota, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, called Augustana University. And we had conversations about what it is that kids need in order to do okay. A lot of those conversations were with a coffee cup in our hand and uh, experiences under our belt. And it was clear that we all came from kind of different backgrounds with different information. Larry as a psychologist, director of a large residential institute in in Michigan, Martin, theological background, sociology background, and then I was an educator. And I started out as a classroom teacher and then became a principal in Sleepy Eye, Minnesota for a number of years. Thoroughly loved that and thought I would go that route until I was invited uh, to join the Augustana faculty and fell in love with that kind of teaching, uh, that kind of world. Um, certainly appreciated the autonomy that was given to me as a, as a professor. Yeah, and in, the, in that time, um, Larry, Martin, and I just decided we'd, we'd pool our, our thinking, our ideas, and uh, we ended up with a book called Reclaiming Youth at Risk, Our Hope for the Future. Now, in the third edition, we've changed it to Reclaiming Youth at at Risk, Futures of Promise. And um, it's, it's, it's a shift in our thinking that went from just dealing, in a sense, with what were then called at risk children, and now we even refer to them as children at risk, with that as our focus to thinking about all of our children as people with futures of promise and just as all of us are. And so what we in essence did was come up with four 
key principles that we think all children must have in their being in order to do well, uh, to be okay. And of course, being well, doing okay can be defined differently, but in essence, um, our thinking was that we want children not only to survive, but to thrive and to get through this world in safe and happy ways, in ways that are productive and, and life-giving for self and, and for others. And those four key principles came to us by looking at um, contemporary research, Maslow, Seligman, Peter Benson, and others helped us think about what it is that um, children need in order to thrive. But we also looked at the work of youth work pioneers, uh, people that thought differently about kids. Um, Maria Montessori, Montessori comes to mind. A lot of people recognize that name. She was one of those that um, thought differently about children and how they should be in the classroom setting. One of my favorite quotes from her has to do with her thinking that when she walked into the classroom and she saw these kids, it seemed to her as if they were butterflies uh, pinned to a display case. And uh, Maria said, I'll take the pins out. Let them fly. Let them move. Let them uh, be responsible and, and take actions for their, for their own learning. So we used a lot of that kind of thinking from youth work pioneers that thought and worked differently with kids. And then finally, we used, which was quite novel, we, we used ideas that come, came from indigenous ways of thinking about nurturing and guiding children, particularly uh, from uh, the plains of South Dakota and, and this region. And with Martin's background as a Lakota, uh, it soon became clear that their ideas about uh, working with kids and how they thought of kids was really quite different, and we tapped into that. A case in point or an idea, for example, is that oftentimes people think of children as property, uh, beings in progress uh, that don't necessarily deserve the, the same respect um, that we give to adults. And in Native culture, that wasn't the, the case. In the Sioux language, Lakota language, Wakan means sacred being, and that was the name given to children. And so when you think about kids as sacred beings, you know you respond and, um, and react differently to them than if you think of them as chattel or property, something that you can do anything with. So with, with all, all of that kind of folded in, uh, and we ended up taking those ideas and translated them into four key needs belonging, mastery, independence, and generosity. We placed those ideas around uh, the native medicine wheel, some call, sometimes called the sacred hoop. The circle itself is important in that it demonstrate how, demonstrates how all of these needs are connected. Uh, all of them influence one another. And in essence, without going into great detail, Here's a simple way of thinking about uh, a child's human needs. Belonging could be considered uh, to be captured in a, 
simple statement like, I need to be loved. I need to have someone care for me, to look out for me, to nurture me, to guide me. I need to be loved. The concept of mastery goes beyond what most teachers think about as mastery or this idea of getting a certain percentage on a test score, a math or reading exam. For us, mastery has to do with this internal sense that you have that I can do things, I'm capable. Bandura, its research about self-efficacy um, taps into how we think about mastery, this idea that I, I am capable. For independence, the simple little phrase would be, I will. Power oftentimes has been oh, criticized as, as something that's bad. In actuality, power is something all, we all need. It just needs to be used appropriately. And, and for us, that is a need that children have, to have a sense of responsibility, um, a sense of ownership, a sense of being able to make choices, and to take responsibility for those choices. All of that's wrapped up into this idea of independence. I will. And then finally, the fourth identified need for, for children uh, to do well is this idea of generosity, a preeminent value in Native culture, to give, to share. And so um, our thinking too, based on the psychological research and what we were hearing from these youth work pioneers, is that this need to feel like I can help, that I can be useful, that I can serve, that I can give, that I live my life outside of myself is powerful uh, for the psyche of, of a, a child. Now, over the years, too, um, what I've concluded is that it's not just the kids that have these as basic needs. These are our basic needs, too, as, as adults. And more specifically, in my professional work with, with teachers, I think they are fundamental for the life of a school person to have those needs met, to feel like they're loved, they're capable, that they have some power, and that they're able to help and, and to give back. When those needs are met in the adults, I think there is a uh, transference value that happens as kids begin to see that um, and feel that in the school and in the classroom. It's, it's with that understanding that um, I decided to take the work that Martin and Larry and I have done over the years and kind of translate it into my own personal, if you will, almost a memoir, teaching days. Um, but, but of course, trying to include the research and the ideas in a way that um, helps me explain my thinking about what I think the school um, that matters looks like. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting that you mention that it's almost a, a, a memoir, a personal journey. You probably don't remember us having a conversation in probably 2009, I think, when you were first toying with this idea and you had uh, you know, a PowerPoint presentation and it was more about what a school should be doing. I said what a school should be doing, what the adults in a school should be doing and feeling. And you know, I actually took that draft and used it with 
faculty in the school that I was the director of at the time, which was a residential alternative school, and working on changing the adults' perception about resilience and and about ba- these basic needs of of belonging and mastery, uh, independence or autonomy um, and generosity and and what that looks like as a teacher really changed changed some minds in a, in a very positive way because it is sometimes so different from, I don't know if mindset is the right word, but the however you describe the way you focus and and look at things and the way you you the schema that you build in your mind about what it is that I should be doing um, as a teacher, as an educator, it was uh, very different. Yeah. Um, I think you know for me, I, I don't want to dismiss what most people think about schooling, the purpose of schooling, which is related to academics, uh, maybe connected to our mastery part of the circle. And that, that's powerful, that's important. But the perspective I'm trying to share is that um, I think what needs to happen in schools is this perspective that says, we want a sense of, of well-being in this place, not only for the students, but also for the teachers. I mean, why would anybody wanna to go to work in a place where there wasn't joy and uh, a, a sense of energy and a, and a sense of, um, purpose, a sense of connectedness going on. I mean, it was one of the reasons why I became a teacher after experiencing in um, aiding and observing in, in classrooms, uh, the joy that can be felt in classrooms when the teachers are engaged with kids and in friendly and honest and open ways, uh, where there's a genuine sense of life actually happening. You know, Dewey talked about the fact that Education oftentimes is looked at as something that we're preparing our students for in the future. He's got that right. I, I mean, <laughs> those that think that way, uh, partially right. But Dewey also said uh, education is for right now. It's, it's for the living right now. And so uh, in, in many ways, what's going on in our classrooms, uh, while it is preparation, should also be a place that allows us as both adults and and kids to enjoy our lives. I mean, we're spending a lot of time in those four walls and in that <laughs> building. So why not make it a place where um, needs are being met? And in many ways, my argument is that when needs are met, we will experience the sense of well-being um, mm-hmm. as both an adult or as a child too. Um, so we're always looking for ways to, to find connections, belonging, relationships. We're always looking for ways to feel like we're learning and moving forward with new ideas, new thinking, uh, new ways of, uh, of going about living. We're always looking for ways to, to make choices, to take responsibility for our lives. And finally, we're looking for ways to, to be helpful. And when that happens, we do okay. Now, here's the deal. You know, as, as human beings, we're never, never's too much of a word to use here, but we're not always in the center of the circle experiencing those things. I mean, part of the human condition 
And Hemingway said it this way, that all of us live broken lives, and then some are stronger in the broken places. And I think that's true, that none of us are, it's difficult to be in the center of the circle all of the time. I mean, we experience failed relationships. At times we feel like a failure, not very capable, very competent. At times we feel powerless, like a puppet on a string. And at other times we, we wonder about our purpose and what, what our role is. And, uh, and, and, and those times hurt. Um, those can be painful times, but most of us who have grown up in the presence of capable, loving, um, smart, independent, helping adults, when we're not in the center of the circle, um, can get pulled back in by the examples and the modeling of, of other people. And most of us have experienced that, although, like you, you know, we've been with kids that their needs have not been met at all. They've never experienced love, mm -hmm. being successful, um, being independent in the right ways, or being able to give back. And, and those, those kids are difficult um, to work with. Uh, yeah. It takes a certain kind of mindset to understand that and to be able to move toward them rather than away from them. Because our mm -hmm. tendency as a human being, of course, is to move away from the other. Uh, those that scare us, make us fearful, don't act like us, don't share our values. Um, that makes us nervous. And yeah. we tend to move away from those kids. Does that matter? We're, we're trying to move toward them. Yeah. And it is kind of hard sometimes because, yeah, a lot of times the, the more difficult kids, when you try and create an environment that promotes wellness and joy. It's such a different environment that those same kids will oftentimes push us away as well, making it, of course, more difficult um, on both sides. And, and you can really end up adults sometimes, and I still see it in schools today, you know, end up in that negative cycle of pushing each other away and because it's comfortable for it's more comfortable for the kid and it's more comfortable for the adult. And yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, sometimes these concepts, these ideas seem Pollyannish mm -hmm. um, to a lot of folks. And in some ways they can be if, if used with kids that have only experienced the other side. And by the other side, I'm talking about more traditional ways of punishing, um, delivering curriculum and so on a lot of those kids don't know anything different than this demarcation between adults and kids and a sort of a, a dark and somber feeling when you walk into the environment. That's all they know. And then all of a sudden you bring in some of these ideas of, of joy and hope and kids making choices and kids helping one another. And it's like, that's not the way it is. And uh, nobody knows quite how to, to move that culture from that very negative, dark centered way of thinking about education and kids to the more uh, light and, and open way of, of dealing with children. Yeah. However, um, when I say nobody, um, we think we have some ideas about it. Well, and, and from, from my experience, what I found is that the real frustration was the amount of time that it seems like it's taking when you 
do try and make that change. Uh, it's a, it's a multi-year process, which again, it goes, it kind of goes back to the research, any, you know, any serious transformational change was a three to five year process in a school. And I mean, there's a lot of different sure. things that, that people have looked at to, to see that that's the case. So, well, and that, that matches with what we know about how the brain learns too. I mean, the, the brain is really good at creating patterns of knowledge and those patterns of knowledge are based on experiences, uh, what we live with, what we see and kids that have experienced in a sense, a trauma, um, or negativity or certain ways of doing things, even in a school environment, those patterns get set in the brain. And it takes years of other ways of doing things, years of, of experiencing safety, for example, to get over trauma that maybe has been experienced. And um, yeah, that, that, that takes time. And I think it can be discouraging for teachers because they feel like if they come to kids with an open hand, um, you know, trying to help them understand how I'm here to help. And then they, their hand gets bit by the very hand. That's trying to <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm done with this. So there needs to be lots of support within a, a school building. Um, lots of help, lots of understanding, lots of patience uh, to, to move, move the culture to a different place that I think um, most teachers were looking for when they got into the profession in the first place, but they end up experiencing something quite different, particularly schools that are so focused on the data in sorting kids, determining, you know, the academic achievers uh, compared to those that aren't. And, and then, you know, this whole race to the top, um, just, it, it doesn't excite them after a while. And, right. and I think intuitively they begin to experience that this isn't the most important thing. It's important, and I, I, I don't want to dismiss our teaching kids how to read and do mathematics and so on, but the, the human being is so much more complex than that. And if we neglect the arts, if we neglect the, um, the relationships that are so necessary and powerful, um, in our in our lives, uh, we're missing a whole lot, and I I think it's one of the reasons teachers are leaving education in droves is that they're just tired of this this climbing the ladder of of success, whatever that means, and uh, they don't know what it means if we neglect all parts of of what we are as as human beings. It reminds me, we talk about the race to the top and, and the goal of testing. And, and I don't want to, um, don't want to belabor that and like to move on away from that actually, but it does pop into my head just because another episode that I was editing just yesterday, I'm talking with Matthew Courtney and he's talking about the data that teachers are using in the classroom. And usually the state testing data is not the most important thing. One of the examples he mentioned, and you're talking about, you know, trauma in schools. And he's like, you know, he's like the, the piece of data that I keep telling teachers to focus on is you've got a, a phone number for a kid 
that's in a database that you have access to all the time, you know, your electronic grade book, whatever program it is. And he's like, if you start looking at the number of times that a kid or a kid's phone number changes, that's telling you, you've got a student who you should be worried about because you have a transient student. And I just, I keep exactly. thinking about that when we keep talking about data, the the testing and the, the race to the top mentality, we've got so much better data that schools and teachers have access to that they, that are not considered important. And yet that's, <laughs> that's what we need to be looking at a lot more. Right. That kid that's sitting out on, along the fence at playground time himself. Recess after recess. That's powerful data. Mm-hmm. Kid that doesn't get invited to to play in the games out at recess or in the classroom. That's significant data. The way yeah. the kid smells when they walk into the classroom is important data. We, we could go on and on about what really is significant and important information, but we, we tend to ignore that or minimize it at, at, at the most and, or at the least. And I think some of that is because, you know, there was a time when if kids didn't respond or act like we wanted them to in schools, we could just dismiss them. And they'd quit after a certain period of time and just walk away. But yeah, mm-hmm. kids are with us. Yeah. And be there. So when I was in college, I worked, uh, in the summers, I worked the Incline Railway in Chattanooga. It is run by our local public transportation system. And so the people that are working there full time have good, high paying jobs. Well, there are a couple of couple of those guys, high school dropouts, and they could get good, high paying jobs at the time. When kids are dismissed from school, either by their choice or our choice or some combination, we're now forcing them into a life of that's not going to be happy, not going to be joyful. I mean, you can't make a living wage anymore, legally or illegally, you know, without the very least a high school diploma and something beyond that. And so belonging and, and mastery are important in a lot of ways beyond that. Right. You know, for me, this uh, schools have a responsibility to teach this emotional intelligence. Dan Goleman, in his best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ, makes the argument up front. And, you know, I'm sure it would take someone with the ability to check his work <laughs> ability more than I have to question when he says, that 70% of our success in life is based on our emotional intelligence, not necessarily our um, academic intelligence. And so I I think it is important for all of our children um, to have the opportunity to understand what it means to be an emotionally intelligent person. And, you know, I, I like the I like the definition that Salovey uses, which is, in essence, you know, an emotionally intelligent person understands their emotions and can manage them, understands the emotions of others and can manage those, uh, can motivate self, 
and can also build healthy relationships. And I think schools have a responsibility to all of our students, whether or not they opt out because they would rather get involved and you know, work right away um, or stick around for opportunities to go on to university. I, I think it's essential that um, kids be given uh, a sense of those important emotional skills. Um, and all of those connect to civility and the way we talk to one another and the way we exchange ideas and so on, which I think we're, we're missing today, and particularly in our political worlds. And um, so, um, yeah, I would agree with you that we don't want to force kids out, um, but I think we're beginning to understand that the value of what you know I would have called vocational schools at one time, now more, more oftentimes referred to as technical institutes, um, you know, alternative programming, programming that gets kids out and involved in work-related um, businesses. Uh, that's all good too. And I think underlying any one of those professions, any, any directions our students go is the importance of um, helping them with social emotional skills. And I would make the argument that, that the best way to teach those things is for kids to be around social, emotionally competent adults. Um, absolutely yes. essential for them to, to see how adults handle conflict, how to engage one another, how to make argumentation without getting mad or angry or spitting in each other's faces. I think all of that is valuable information that comes from kids watching um, competent adults, loving adults, powerful adults. In the next episode of the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, Steve Van Bockern and I will continue our conversation discussing more specifically about what happens in schools that adopt a model like the Circle of Courage. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is brought to you as a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. If you would like to learn more about how we help schools and youth organizations embed social-emotional learning within their cultures and implement strength-based restorative interventions, please visit our website, www dot oncourse solutions dot net this has been episode two of the 2023 season if you enjoy this podcast please tell your friends and colleagues about it either in person or using social media we also greatly appreciate positive reviews on the podcast app you use the thoughtful teacher podcast is hosted and produced by r scott lee and is a copyright of OnCourse Education Solutions, LLC. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guests are never compensated for appearance, nor do guests pay to appear. Transcripts are available following podcast publication at our website, Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. 
Theme music is composed and recorded by Audio Coffee. Sponsorship opportunities or other inquiries may be made on the Contact Us page at our website, ThoughtfulTeacherPodcast.com. And please follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Dr. R. Scott Lee, and on Mastodon, at Dr. R. Scott Lee, at UniverseDon.com. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.